Well, we've been in this series called Once Upon a Savior for a few weeks now, and we're, we're talking about the story, uh, the story of, of Jesus in the, the passion narrative, the last kind of week uh, leading up to his, his death, his burial, and of course, as we celebrate next week, the resurrection. Uh, this, when we talk about story, it's important to realize that we're not talking about a fairy tale. Uh, it's not a, just a legend or a myth. But it's a narrative that actually spans thousands of years and which the Bible speaks to from cover to cover. And that is our need for a Savior. And while the main character in this story is the Savior, Jesus, the other characters help paint the picture and also help us to find our place in the story, which is important. So the other characters that we've looked at so far in this series are ones that we can uh, perhaps um, easily identify, even though, you know, when we think of the, the faces of, of Peter or some of the disciples or of Judas, um, you know, they might look similar to some of those old Jesus movies, you know, that we watched or, you know, they, uh, I remember the one Jesus character who had like those really like completely clear blue eyes. I think it was like the, the German or Dutch Jesus. But anyways, and, and you know how the disciples in some of these always yeah, maybe speak with a, a British accent or something. Anyways, they might, might look like that, uh, or the characters might look a little more similar to those perhaps in the, the more recent Chosen series that some of you, I know a lot of people will watch and are finding a lot of good things in that. So those, those pictures, when we think of a character, there is sometimes a face that pops into our, our mind. Uh, maybe it helps us. I know a lot of people that read books, and then they, they read and they have a picture in their mind of what the character is, and then that book becomes a movie, and they're like, that's not at all uh, who I was envisioning. But pictures in our mind do help us. But what we're talking about today in the character is, is kind of a faceless character in this. A significant player in this passion narrative, but one that's sort of vague or faceless, and it's the crowds. It's the crowds. You know, I don't particularly like crowds. I remember being in, when we lived on the coast for 20 years, we would go um, to English Bay and we would watch what they call the celebration of, of light. And there were big, big fireworks kind of things. And, uh, and so we would go down there hours ahead of time to try to find a seat on the beach, find a good spot. And, and like 100,000 people would gather down there for this. And I remember being down there, uh, and some of you are just like cringing already because you're, you're like me, uh, with crowds. But I was there. I was sitting there. We were waiting, and I was you know, getting sand everywhere. And I was like, okay, when's this going to start? And you have to wait till it was almost like 10 o'clock at night to the sun to go down. And we were sitting there, and all of a sudden, like the last minute, people just kind of crowd in. They just sort of, they come late, and then they just sort of jam in, and they sit down everywhere. And this, this one particular lady, she was very inebriated. And she kind of stumbled her way through and stood there kind of in front of us. And then all of a sudden, she just dropped her drawers and started peeing right in front of us. And I was like, I'm done. Out of here. I am never coming back to see the fireworks again. Like, honestly, I said, I don't need this. Crowds can be wild and, and things can happen. And you're just like, oh. And even, I've, maybe it's because I'm getting a little bit older, uh, but I find even like hockey games or concerts. I used to love going to concerts. And now it's like I go to these I don't know, old people concerts where you can sit the whole time, right? Because it's just, I just like the music. Just, it's, uh, you know. 
I can't stand that long, all right? Um, and my wife is still around there jumping around, and I'm just like, can we sit down now? So I feel like I could sit at home with a perfectly good big screen TV, nice audio system, snacks, right? Available right there. Doesn't cost you, you know, 11 bucks for a water. And, uh, okay, so you get the idea. Crowds and me, not really a thing. And don't get me started on on Christmas shopping at the mall. Anyways. Some of you, okay, let's take a poll. Let's take a poll. How many of you, you know, are, are not crowds people? You would rather just, you know, stay home. Okay, so... And the rest of you are just like, oh, see, my wife is like that. She, we always talk about the differences, right, between my wife and I. How are we possibly together? But she loves crowds. She loves to go to New York and just like the crowds, the people. She loves to people watch wherever she goes. And I, I, I don't. But it's pretty difficult to completely avoid crowds where we particularly live. And honestly, there might be some times where they're actually good. So I'm going to give you just quickly to introduce this idea of crowds as the good, the bad, and the ugly of crowds. First of all, the good. The good, when there is wisdom okay, in a multitude. How many of you have watched the old show, the Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Okay, you remember that, remember that show? Is that going way back or what? Contestant gets trivia questions, gets so much money for every question they get right, but they get some options, right? In between there, if they want to phone a friend, they can do that. They only get so many of these options. And one of the other ones is to pull the audience, right? And so the audience has little, little things on their, on their chair that they can punch in, you know, the right answer that they think is the right answer. And then that person can then go with what the crowd says. And they found that there was, once everything was tabulated, it was about 95% accuracy if the contestant went with, with the majority of the crowd. So, you know, there is some pooling of wisdom at times. Another thing is if you are on the internet and you punch in something to search, what you're doing is what comes up is actually sort of the majority or the most popular articles or people that have searched things, you know, before you on the same topic and the most you know, reliable ones kind of come to the surface, potentially. It depends, I guess, on what you punch in, but you know what I'm saying. Proverbs 15, verse 22 says, Without counsel, purposes are disappointed, but in the multitude of counselors, they are established. Proverbs 11, 14, and 24, verse 6 also mention this idea of there's in a multitude of counselors, or having many advisors is wise. The basic idea or principle is that there's wisdom in seeking a broad range of advice rather than just relying solely on your own wisdom or ignorance or your gut. Drawing on the experience of others can be good. It's also bad. There's bad when there is conformity. We probably all grew up with peer pressure in school. Uh, it It was rough at times. And I'd say even if you were homeschooled, I heard one homeschooled kid say the other day that it had been a rough week. Two students had been expelled for fighting, and, and one of the teachers was fired for drinking on the job. You're so slow. I know, it was my only homeschool joke that I could find. But, um, <laughs> but, but peer pressure comes in all, all ways, and, and all, you hear this from your kids, if you've ever had kids that are going through this and they say this, or you said it, as a teenager, or younger even, all my friends are doing it. 
right? All, all, my, all the kids at school, my whole class is, is doing this. And I want to tell you, uh, any of you that aren't in Kids Quest, but kids of teenagers, let me tell you, that is, that is like the worst possible thing that you could say to a parent, right, parents? Like, don't ever say that. Well, everybody's doing it. All my friends are doing that. That's one thing, just to stir up that part of the parent that just gets their ire right up. So try a different tact with that. But for, you know, everyone is doing it. Everyone has to have rugby pants. That was me. That was my, my thing. Grade five. I remember it well. I was a GWG Wrangler kind of farm kid, you know? And all of a sudden, everyone's wearing rugby pants. And I remember telling my mom, I, I need to have rugby pants. Like, I'm just, I'm standing out like a sore thumb with my, my Wrangler jeans. And, and I remember her taking me like to Kmart or something in, in Swift Current and, and buying me rugby pants. And I didn't even like them. It was like drawstring. It wasn't even, uh, but it was, everyone was doing it. Peer pressure. In a crowd, there can be something that psychologists call social convergence. It's when you, when you fear being different, when you go along with the crowd because you fear standing out. An example of this was in the 1950s, a guy named Solomon Ash. He, uh, I don't know if I'm saying his name right, but um, anyways, he had this experiment that he was doing with people and he would draw students, college students or whatever, into a room and he would give them a piece of paper and on this piece of paper there was one solid line on one side and on the other side there was three lines that were kind of staggered a little bit. Maybe you've seen this before, but two of the lines on the right side were, were quite different. One was quite short, one was a little bit longer, and then one was the exact same as the one on the left side. And the idea was for the, the test subjects to pick which line was the same as the first one, which ones matched. And so what they did with this was then they had, he had paid actors who would come in and, and they would choose, and they would choose one of the wrong ones. And they would go first, and they would all choose, say the answer, the correct one was very clearly C, but they would all say the answer is B, and they would go down the line, B, 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 and then all of a sudden to the test subject, and then they were on the spot. Do they stand out against the crowd and say what seems like obvious, that that is the matching one, and yet all these other people saw something different, so they're looking, are my eyes bad? And, and this was the test, but they had to go against you know, either the flow or decide on their own. And what they found was 36.8% of test subjects had some degree of social conformity. And they asked them after, why did you choose that, even though it was so obvious? They said, well, I didn't want to stand out. I didn't want to look stupid. Now, that was the 50s. And you could say, well, then came the 60s. And while things have changed drastically since then, it seems there's almost the opposite effect of people trying to be, today, be unique, non-conformist. But then at the same time, there's also so much pressure in, this, in our society to be tolerant and inclusive. And if you don't agree, then you're labeled a bigot or intolerant or so on. Conformity. Third and finally, there's ugly where there's violence, when a crowd comes together and there's, there's this capacity within this crowd to be stirred up, a peaceful protest can turn ugly quickly. This mob mentality, we've seen this in the last few years. It's wild how people can suddenly turn from, you know, just 
all of a sudden becoming aggressive to the police, flipping over and burning cars because their hockey team lost. Uh, that was painful for all Canuck fans in 2011. Won't bring it up again. Or when an angry mob rushes past security, breaks through windows and doors at the U.S. Capitol building. And that was just over two years ago. All right, so there's good, the bad, and the ugly of crowds. This morning, we want to briefly look at the crowds in this passion narrative. And in a way, that since we've sort of come up to Friday already last week, this will be a bit like, like you see in some TV shows where it says previously on or six days earlier, okay? Because we're going to go back because today is Palm Sunday. And that's where we'll begin. All right, turn in your Bibles if you have them or you can follow on the screen to Luke chapter 19 verse 28 to 40. Luke 19, 28 to 40. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Now, you may have heard uh, previous sermons on this, and, uh, and this question has come up. How, how fickle was the crowd that, that worshipped Jesus on Sunday, on Palm Sunday? You know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king. To suddenly on Friday to cursing and shouting for him to be crucified. And you know, this never sat right with me. It never seemed right that a crowd that came with Jesus and his disciples and who had seen all that they had seen would become suddenly an angry mob. And so I want to suggest to you, and I could be wrong, but I'm just su suggesting this, that there were numerous crowds in this story. And so we're going to look at, at some of those, and, and then you can kind of chew on it for yourself and decide. First of all, there was the crowd who followed from Galilee. Okay, the crowd who followed from Galilee. And when we think of Jesus, his relationship with crowds, it was kind of minimal. Like he, he tolerated them, but he, he didn't get real excited about having a mass group of people. And it says in, in the Gospels, it says that he knew what was in their hearts. He knew men. And so it was when he saw this crowd, it wasn't like, wow, things are going great. Things are going just according to plan. Because he looked at the crowds and he knew that they didn't truly understand what he was all about. And so he kind of had this, this sort of tolerant view of, of the crowds around him as he went along. But this, this group, initial group, crowds, this, these were followers. They were ones that potentially he had healed and he had fed and were also supporters of, of his ministry. And so throughout 
these last chapters in Luke, what's happening is, and, and other gospels, they say Jesus is making his way towards Jerusalem. And he's told them this, I have to go to Jerusalem, even though they knew that politically and, you know, just everything was not going to be in a good favor for Jesus if he goes to Jerusalem. But he says, I have to go, and this is what's going to happen. I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, and I'm going to be beaten, crucified, and and at third day, I'm going to rise again. He told them this on numerous occasions, clearly, yet they didn't understand it. And so these folks that were coming along with him, they had been hearing this, and they knew that Jesus was going to Jerusalem, and, so, and they were also going there as for the Passover. They were with Jesus along their way. And so this is what we read already. It says, when he came near the place, it says, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. So they had seen these miracles, and they were like, let's, let's go along with Jesus. Now, these previous chapters in Luke's gospel, as he's saying he's making his way to Jerusalem, there's a couple instances that just highlight this crowd. In Luke 18, verse 36, when he's in Jericho, so not yet to Jerusalem, there's a blind man along the side of the road, and it says this, when he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening, and they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Carry on into Luke chapter 19, verse 3 and 4, we hear about Zacchaeus, okay, this tax collector, and it says he wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead, climbed a sycamore tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. So this crowd that's, that's moving with Jesus towards Jerusalem, and we'll hear later that it also include many women, uh, some who had means to support financially the ministry of Jesus and the disciples. So that's the first crowd. Now the next crowd is ones that had already got to Jerusalem, and it says in Scripture that they went out from Jerusalem. Okay, So this is a group of people that it says that they, they had witnessed and heard about Lazarus being raised from the dead. Now that would, that would cause a stir, right? That would be something that you would talk about and you would want to say, okay, have you seen Lazarus? Yeah, I saw him. He was at the market the other day. Like these were ones that were identifying that Jesus had done something unbelievable. And so they were tracking along and then they heard that he was coming. And so then it says that they went out to meet the other crowd with Jesus on this day of the triumphant, triumphal entry. And so they would go out, they would say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is what they would say to, to the pilgrims who were coming to Jerusalem, to the temple. And those who were already there were saying, you know, this blessing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So now John 12, 17 says this, now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. That was, the, that was the inside perspective of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. They saw the crowd that had been coming with Jesus from Galilee was growing. And now there's those that are going from Jerusalem that got there earlier, going out to meet him. And it was a massive crowd. And these religious leaders are thinking, man, like, we're hooped. Like, whatever we're doing, this isn't working. The whole world has gone after Jesus, following him. It says earlier in John 12, it says, When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. 
So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as, as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And so here's the, the gall of these corrupt religious leaders. They, uh, in, in my mind, I, I just, this isn't in the story, but I just think they hired an assassin. I like to think that way, but whatever they did, they were plotting to take out Lazarus. I mean, you can imagine the nerve of these religious leaders. They were so, so fearful of losing their power and their position and their privilege. There's a guy that was sick. He died. Jesus rose, called him from the dead. And people saw this. They witnessed it. And they said, we can't have any of that. Let's kill that guy. <laughs> like, just mind-blowing, right? So this crowd, they've, they've witnessed Lazarus. They've seen him come out of the tomb. This is part of that second crowd going out to meet them. All right. Then there was a crowd who conspired. Now, last week, we learned the timeline of the events, that there, there was this kangaroo court trial they had for Jesus that went from, like, middle of the night from Friday morning to Jesus being on the cross at 9 a.m. Now, there may have been some of this traveling crowd watching at this hour, and this is just my guess, but I, I guess they were sleeping. Like, they, they didn't have this notion of what was going to happen. And the Passover days were, ran late. People stayed up late. It doesn't say that in the text, so I don't know. But I'm just saying, I don't know if that crowd, this passionate Jesus-following crowd, was there at this political rally that the religious leaders stirred up. Because they knew they had to do something on the sly. You know, it's like some, the government, when they put a bill through and nobody watches their news or social media that day, right? They just, you got to get it through. And, and all of a sudden, what? Wait, what happened? That's what these religious leaders had conspired with Rome, made this all happen, that from arrest, trial, Jesus on the cross, 9 a.m. that day. And so this was a different crowd, this is those who were stirred up by religious leaders. This is what Matthew 27 says. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall we do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. Mark 15, 11 says, but the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. So these are people that the religious leaders had in their back pocket. And we'd see later that they would be, you know, they'd be paying off witnesses. They were corrupt. And they made this happen quickly. This is the crowd at the cross. And we learned that this was mostly, this was soldiers and spectators. Matthew 27, 54 to 56 says, When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee. This is part of that crowd initially to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. And so we learn that this crowd who was watching Jesus die, 
upon witnessing the earthquake, the darkness, the way that Jesus died, at least one hardened soldier verbalized simple faith. Surely this man was the son of God. Crowds. So where do we find ourselves in the story? I suggest to you today that there's crowds that remain. And there's just two. There's those today who reject or neglect Jesus. And this is a big crowd. There will always be this crowd. Jesus said, all men will hate you because of me. He says in Matthew 7, 13, enter through the narrow gates for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. It's a big crowd going that way. The crowd then and today has to answer the question, who is this Jesus? Who is Jesus? That question is asked of us today, and maybe you'll hear that question asked of you in some form or another this week, as maybe you talk to friends or coworkers, neighbors, about the significance of this season of Easter for you. When you talk about Jesus being risen from the dead. It's a question that needs to be asked and answered. Who is this Jesus? I had a conversation with someone recently who acknowledged that Jesus was a real historical person. No no denying that. But he didn't acknowledge that Jesus was God or that he rose from the dead. He said he was a good man who had a powerful message of loving and respecting others. And I I confess that I probably got a little little heated at this, a little passionate at this point in the conversation because I said, they don't kill people for that. They don't kill people for that. If you're a nice person, you teach good things, you're loving and you're respectful, you're tolerant of everyone and you love everyone, they don't kill you for that. They didn't kill 10 of the 12 disciples of Jesus because they went around doing good and loving people. They don't kill 4,700 Christians every year in our world today for being loving and respectful people. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, if you know him, you know the Father. He said the words that he spoke were the words that the Father had given him to say. He said he was the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. He said the Father was in him, and he was in the Father. He said before Abraham was born, I am. He was equating himself with God the Father. He said he was the light of the world, that he was the true bread from heaven. He said he was the good shepherd. He was the gate that all must enter who want to have eternal life. He said he was the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in him would never die. He said he came as a ransom to pay the price for our sins, to be the lamb, the offering that would set us free from our sin and death. So listen, if you join the crowd that rejects or neglects Jesus, at least be clear on what you're rejecting and what you're neglecting. But there's another crowd. 
And that's those today who follow and worship Jesus, the risen Lord. We are the church. We're the body of Christ. We're a crowd. And in this crowd, there is joy and there is encouragement. And we find strength when we stand together. This crowd, though often small in one location, joins with the universal church who globally will will gather one week from today and will declare that Jesus is alive, that he is risen, that he is risen indeed. Let's pray. God, we... We live in a very difficult and complex world. And it seems like there's, there's so many sides, there's so many crowds, and yet really when we boil it down, there's those who reject you and neglect you or that worship and follow you. And so today I, I pray for, for myself that I would join the crowd that's on your side. And I call and invite the people of College Drive Community Church to, just like we were wearing the shirts this morning in the baptism tank, to say, I've decided. Wasn't wearing my shirt that said, I'm on the fence. Wasn't wearing the shirt that said, I'm ambivalent. But I'm wearing the shirt that says, I've decided. I've given my life to following you, Jesus. And so count me in. I'm part of that crowd. Amen.